What do you do with your old tech? Throw it in the trash? Drop it in the junk drawer? Why not turn it into cash? With Trade-In from Backmarket, you can get paid for your old smartphone, laptop, or tablet. Just visit backmarket.com or download our app. You'll get an offer in as little as two minutes. Ship your old device to us for free and get your cash within five days. So next time you need to upgrade your tech or clean out those drawers, make some money with Trade-In from backmarket.com. And while you're there, save up to 70% versus new on your next verified refurbished device. Welcome to The Long and Short, a series of podcasts in which we discuss long poems and short stories of the later 19th and 20th centuries, a conversation informed by the rich archive of essays, reviews, and other pieces that have appeared over the years in the London Review of Books. I'm Seamus Perry. I teach English at Balliol College in Oxford, and I'm talking to Mark Ford, poet, critic, and professor of English at University College London. And today we take a step into modernity and also into the counterculture, for our subject is Allen Ginsberg and his two great long poems, Howl and Kaddish. Unlike many of our earlier authors in this series, Mark Ginsberg was not only a writer but also a person of quite extraordinary celebrity. And in your own piece in the LRB, you compare his status within American letters to that of Kipling in early 20th century England. Uh, so that's a big difference. Uh, I can't remember doing that, but I believe you. And I think what is interesting is the nationalist aspect of it, that Kipling was a poet who was the poet of empire and who celebrated uh, an ideal of Englishness and wanted it exported around the world. Now, Allen Ginsberg was very right on and was a political activist and most of the causes which he espoused possibly not Nambler, the North American man-boy-love association, mm. um, but most of the causes he espoused were ones w which one uh, would agree with. Um, but he very much didn't detach that from his vision of America, that like Whitman, he was a poet who wanted to correct America, that he saw America as having been kind of corrupted and it was enthralled to the military-industrial complex, to its kind of corrupt politics. And he had a utopian vision of America but that really does go back to the whole concept of America, back through Whitman in particular, with whom he associated himself very strongly. But Whitman's poems were very much, Song of Myself, but also prose works like Democratic Vistas, were an attempt to project a vision of an ideal America. And that goes back to the Puritans. I mean, they arrived wanting to found a city on a hill mm. and everyone's eyes would be upon them. And there's not a huge difference between that sense of a self-selecting ideal tribe and the concept of being a beat, a beatnik, that you belong to a self-selecting tribe who have rejected the morals and the conventions of the majority and are living a righteous life, though this righteous life for the beats involves taking lots of LSD and having kind of free sex and living in communes and trading beads for sandals uh, rather than entering the kind of money system and so on. But it still does connect to that notion that is hardwired into the concept of America as a kind of ideal space in which visions, the American dream, can fulfil itself. So we should probably say just a word or two about um, Ginsburg, as it were, before the sudden eruption of Howell. The early poems are quite... I don't know, what, how would you say, quite sort of disappointing in a way. I mean, they've, 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 you can see him learning things from O'Hara. He's, he's fond of anecdotage as something to write about. 
and he's also fond of being hip. So that's Kerouac and Neil Cassidy and all those sorts of things. Um, but he's also got this very interesting influence from William Carlos Williams, who's about the least hipster of poets that you could imagine. What, what, what has he learned from Williams, do you think? Well, he grew up in Paterson. I mean, so, um, I mean, and Williams's great long poem, Paterson, was charting the very terrain in, in which Ginsburg had evolved. Um, Ginsburg's father, Louis, was a schoolteacher um, and a poet himself. And they, uh, Louis and Alan used to read together in the 60s. Louis wrote rather sort of dull, formal poems. He had to pay liver write $2,000 to publish his book. Well, we've all been there. <laughs> uh, alas. Um, but Louis was a, taught English and he grew up. Uh, Ginsburg, despite the trappings of counterculture and drop out and go your own way and trust yourself, which again is a very trust yourself, self-reliance is a wholly kind of Emersonian, Emersonian yes, kind of concept. But Ginsburg was a very literary person and he went to Columbia and studied English literature. Uh, and he, all his early letters hanging out with when he met Kerouac and Ginsburg and, um, Burroughs, and so uh, Burroughs, Lucien Carr and so on. They all compared themselves with kind of Gide. Uh, he loved Auden and, you know, he, uh, and Eliot and so on. So that Ginsburg was by no means a kind of illiterate at all although he would um, cultivate the image of being a kind of wild and woolly prophet figure who was not part of the academy. And his anti-institutionalism is kind of fundamental to that. But in this sense, like Emerson and like Whitman, believed that institutions were inherently corrupting and that you should live out uh, your own dreams, uh, live outside the law, to quote a Bob Dylan line. Um, and, of course, the beats do morph into the counterculture mm. and to the whole explosion in the mid 60s of, of Dylan and the, the, the ways in which uh, the 60s changed America. And the groundwork for that was laid by the Beats. And Dylan up there in Minnesota is reading Howl and it has a huge effect on him. So in terms of the impact of Howl in particular on the directions that American culture and American poetry took, you know, it, it's up there with life studies, but it reaches a much wider audience than life studies. People who wouldn't dream of buying um, a, a Lowell or Book of Lowell or Bishop would buy that little City Lights edition uh, of Howl and slip it in their pockets, mm. not least because it, it, it was a badge. You know, it showed who you were. It had been put on trial for obscenity the year after it was published. So it, it was as, as much a badge as wearing a, a T-shirt of Che Guevara. <laughs> yes. Um, I guess there's one other inference that we should mention before coming on to Howell itself, which is um, an apparently totally contrary influence to the whole, the whole world of William Carlos Williams, who you know, famously says, no ideas but in things, which is something that Ginsburg himself quotes in, in the preface to his collected poems as a, as a guiding principle of his writing. Um, and that is Blake, William Blake, the romantic poet. And Ginsburg's response to Blake is extraordinarily kind of intense and, and, and itself visionary, isn't it? He claims that Blake came to him in a, an apartment in East Harlem in 1948 and recited some poems over the course of several days. Um, yes, the sunflower. <laughs> and it completely, and the sick rose, I think, is yes. that right? And it just completely reshaped his, his sense of time and reality and everything else. 
Uh, yes, I mean, the, the prophetic notion, uh, the idea of the poet as prophet was something that he took from Blake. And when I um, went to, um, I met Ginsberg in 1985, I'll sort of come on to that later when he came to Oxford, having had his collected poems just come out and he was wearing a suit and tie and things. Nevertheless, he had his, his squeeze box, his harmonica with him, and what he sang were songs of Blake's songs, right. okay. which he'd kind of arranged and he, he would squeeze and, and sing. He had a terrible voice, which is one of the reasons, <laughs> I mean, he did want to be a rock star. One of the reasons he couldn't be a rock star was uh, that he, he he couldn't hold a tune. He's tone uh, deaf. Yes. Um, <laughs> although, I mean, you know, he got to jam with Paul McCartney and yeah, you know and Dylan yeah, and yeah, so yeah, on. That yeah. he he absolutely met and Mick and Keith and so on. That Ginsburg was somebody who was hanging out with the the rock stars of the sixties and seventies in a way which was true of no other poets. Um, but his very early writing, I should sort of say, were these kind of sub-Elizabethan poems that he wrote, mm. really terrible sub-Elizabethan poets that are in kind of archaic language. Then uh, he read Williams and started writing sort of descriptions in, in free verse of sewage works and kind of nondescript bits of New Jersey landscape. And um, I think he showed those to Marianne Moore, who said they were very depressing. <laughs> and, uh, and then he discovered Blake. So you get... I think the William Collis Williams aspect is interesting. There is a documentary element mm. in a lot of the ways in which Ginsburg's poetry works, mm. that it, it really is sliding into poetry from the diary entry. Mm. Um, and that's particularly true of poems like Kaddish um, or the poems that he published in the Vietnam War uh, about driving around America and observing the American scene, um, the fall of America, that, that book, which I, I really quite quite like. I think it is a... Uh, if someone likes Ginsburg's long poems, try that one if you like Howell and Kaddish. So this fusion of uh, this prophetic sense of mission and the determination to articulate the values of a particular anti-establishment tribe of, and let's face it, they're all men, mm -hmm. young they're men. Boys, yeah. um, and um, Bill Morgan, Ginsburg's uh, biographer, records how he had the astonishing ability not to notice any women in the room <laughs> in which he was in. Um, <laughs> right. And um, I, I did have evidence of that when I met him with my girlfriend. He... he, he started putting his hand down my back and started inviting me to come up to spend the night with him in London. And, and my girlfriend, <laughs> it was as if she wasn't in the room. Uh, so uh, he did have a sort of single focus um, in, in that sense. And I think we should also celebrate him as one of the great kind of, you know, catalysts for queer liberation that yeah. Ginsburg probably yeah. did more than any other literary person of his generation to uh, promulgate, um, you know, gay liberation and yeah. leads through to Stonewall. And he was uninhibited. He Somebody said, take your clothes off, Alan, and he did <laughs> at a reading. And that's where the whole kind of nakedness thing comes from. Right. But that, that is, is a kind of Blakean stroke Laurentian thing that, that, that Lawrence as well, taking his clothes off and rubbing himself uh, on the mountain. I mean, um, Ginsburg actually does that up in Wales when he goes to Hay on Wye. And he right. does a poem describing taking all his clothes off and kind of... Taking his clothes off in Hay on Wye. In Hay on Wye. <laughs> um, and so there, there are a sense in which he was a performance artist would be one yeah. way of putting it. Another yes. way, he was yes. a kind of shaman. He saw himself as a shaman figure that who would have disciples whom he would convert. And of course, Howl is the great poem of conversion that you read this poem and you think, yes, I want to be a beat. I want to hang out with Alan and his crew mm. and have these extraordinary, visionary, crazy, extreme experiences as a way of not being stuck in the suburbs um, and leading a dull life. That this is um, a way to escape what Lowell called the tranquilized 50s. You know, yeah. Eisenhower America with its dullness and its 2.2 kids and the car in the garage and all that. That Ginsburg is saying, hey, 
there is more going on. And jazz, just to, before we get to Hal, jazz was the key influence on this, this notion, particularly of bebop and Charlie Parker, that you didn't have to have an edu- university education or be uh, as well read as T.S. Eliot to write poems, that you just sat down and blew. You, and he says to Kerouac, that's the first time I was able to sit down and blow uh, mm. when he wrote Howl. And he was helped in that by taking some drugs. Thanks for listening to this extract from The Long and Short, a close reading series from the London Review of Books. To listen to the full episodes and all our other close reading series, sign up to our close reading subscription Go to lrb.me forward slash close readings or click on the link in the description. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops if we're stopping to get gas. You will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, (laughs) you, you were different. Like you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.